This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Our guest today is Dr. Wendy Johnson, professor in the School of Philosophy, Psychology, and Language Sciences at the University of Edinburgh. She is the author of the recently published article, What's to Come of All This Tracking Who We Are? The Intelligence Example. Thank you very much for being here, Wendy. Oh, you're welcome. So in your article, you draw inspiration from Aldous Huxley's classic novel from 1932, Brave New World. For listeners who, like me, haven't read the book since it was assigned reading in high school, can you remind us of some of the social structures of the world state in that book that are relevant to your criticism of modern Western society? Well, I think the most important um, of those structures is that the world has been divided into um, classes of people labeled A, B, C, D, and E. Um, there's A plus and A minus and B plus and B minus. And they, those labels correspond exactly to, we assign those labels to academic marks, uh, except that they're overtly intelligence, not academic marks in this world. In other words, everybody is essentially a test tube baby, and they've been bred very specially to fall into one of those five classes in the, or the subclasses. Um, and their jobs, of course, are assigned accordingly. And well, their lives are organized accordingly. And when I say that their lives are organized, I mean, it's really everything about them. Um, what they eat, what I, what leisure activities they take on, um, what, how they get together socially, everything. The ways they think end up being stratified too, because each class is um, especially indoctrinated to feel that they're in the best place. Your own area of research expertise is on intelligence, um, which is based upon the stratification that we see in Brave New World. Based on your research, is it possible to measure intelligence accurately? And do these measurements have predictive validity for life outcomes? Intelligence measures are considered basically the most accurate measures within psychology. But frankly, that's not saying a hell of a lot. <laughs> and frankly, we don't know to what degree we're measuring it accurately at all. We claim we're measuring it accurately because scores in younger people predict the kinds of life outcomes that we tend to think would go with higher and lower intelligence. In other words, um, academic achievement, um, occupational attainment, job performance within occupation, the amount of money people earn, the social status they gain, any kind of sub-measure, like how many time, how many publications or inventions or um, other particular marks of achievement that people make along the way, all that kind of stuff. What about views that say that Intelligence is not a single monolithic structure, but rather that there are kinds of intelligence. Is that consistent with your 
view in which you would say that in all of psychology, intelligence is one of the, the best measured metrics out there? Well, remember, I said that's not saying a hell of a lot. Yeah. Um, yes, it's consistent in the sense that what it appears is that the more specific aspects of general, what's called general intelligence, do tend to be associated with achievements and attainments in particular areas that would tend to go with the nature of the ability that was measured. Um, in other words, for example, people who end up being engineers tend to have what's called higher spatial ability. And of course, messing around with stuff and where it is in space and how it's fitting together with other stuff is exactly what engineering is. And similarly, people who tend to do especially well on verbally oriented te tests um, tend to wind up in achieving in and occupying niches that require a lot of talking and writing. Mm -hmm. Within those niches, it's usually the people with the higher overall IQs that are doing the better. So this uh, G factor that you're talking about would represent some degree of correlation among these different types of intelligence. So I wanted to ask you about uh, influence of genetics on intelligence. Is there a genetic contribution to intelligence? And I guess more basically, how would we know? Yes, we know there is a genetic contribution to intelligence. How do we know it? Well, originally it was measured by studying um, relatives who were more and less similar to each other. And um, the inference was that the people who were more similarly biologically related were also more similar in whatever trait you wanted to be discussing than people who were less biologically related. There must be genetic influence. But of course, in the last 20 years or so, we've really dug into what's at what actually, actually the genome can show us. In your article, you speculate that there are interactions between societal dynamics on the one hand and genetic predispositions on the other hand that could well lead to increasing social inequality and stratification. Can I ask you to describe how those interactions might be unfolding? We've got a society that very definitely um, tends to reward people who show the kinds of behaviors, achievements are associated with doing well on intelligence tests. And of course, school has a whole bunch to do with that. We make everybody go to school and then we tell each student along the way how well they're doing in school according to the standards that the educators are looking for. Now, the things that the educators are looking for are definitely related to the things that get tested on intelligence tests. Mm -hmm. And then society goes on and tends to reward the people who've done well in school. And doing well in school 
is associated with doing also well on intelligence tests. So we're setting it up so that the people who are able to do well in school, you don't have to give everybody an IQ test, but if you do, the people who've done well in school tend to score higher on that intelligence test. And genes are involved in that. So over time, what's gonna happen is the people who are brighter are gonna to gravitate toward the higher echelons of society. And the people who are less bright are gonna sink into the not so desirable parts of society. And what happens if you're, when, you're, when you grow up and you start to have your children? Well, if you've been born into the higher echelons of society, you got lots of money and you, you're living in a nice house and you can send them to the very best schools. You can make sure you've bought your house in the neighborhood that has the best schools. You can buy private schools if you want to. You, you can buy tutoring lessons. If the kid is struggling, you can do all kinds of things. And of course you can keep everybody healthy by buying only really nutritious food, which you know how to do because you're well-educated and all that. And you've got access to it because you live in a good neighborhood and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the opposite if you're born into poverty. The kids who are born into poverty have much bigger struggles to get out of it as they're growing up than and the kids who are born into the really highest levels have all kinds of support if they're in any danger of falling out of it. You're um, addressing my next question, I think, and what you just said, but returning to Huxley's Brave New World, in what ways do you think Huxley was prescient in imagining some of the ways in which society has become increasingly stratified, which you just described, but also potentially controlling and restrictive? With the advent of the internet, in particular social media, we've started to track each other and ourselves in all kinds of ways. Do we get enough likes when we put stuff up on Facebook and all the other social, social media platforms? Um, government proclamations such as you must eat um, five kinds of pieces of fruit or vegetable a day in order to have good health. And you must take 10,000 steps in order to have had enough exercise and on and on and on. People are tracking whether they've done these things and they're getting more and more to feel that they must be this way. And of course, we've got political correctness all over the place about attitudes and so on and so forth. And, and people who step out of line get called in saying something that was politically correct, whether they're a politician or not, get called out for it somehow. And boy, more and more, it seems like we better toe a particular line. I think you're also, uh foreshadowing my final question for you, which is that, as you know, your article appeared as part of a special issue of Current Directions in Psychological Science on well-measured lives, how all of our lives are being measured more often, and the results are being increasingly used to make life-changing decisions. So given this special issue focus, um, and potentially going beyond the research you reviewed in your article, I'm wondering how you feel about the trend for our lives to be increasingly driven by these metrics. So would you say it's on balance good, bad, neutral? 
And what should we be doing or what should we be keeping in mind as a society going forward? I start to worry that, um, well, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool individual differences psychologist. And I really think that the thing that's interesting and beautiful about people is that they do differ. We are all individuals. And I completely agree with you on the threats to the kind of resilience that society gets from having a diverse population where people are choosing how they're going to excel themselves and making metrics that aren't just handed to them on a plate by a company or by the government, but they're, they're doing the hard work of figuring out for themselves what they're going yes. to value in pursuing it. And maybe yeah. they don't even need to count it up. Yeah. So I've been talking with Wendy Johnson. Uh, thanks very much, Wendy, for the, the really thought-provoking conversation. Oh, you're welcome.